0: The world that we live in is filled with chaos. We are all searching for meaning in our lives, but we often get lost along the way. We all must ultimately realize that meaning is found in responsibility for our actions, for the way we live our life, and for the people in our lives. We don't have to stay in the chaos. We can choose to bring order to our lives. Join us for a fresh perspective on the practical steps we can take to become who God intended us to be and to realize what our calling is. This is Coming Out of Chaos. Welcome back to the Coming Out of Chaos podcast. My name is Michael Bachlig. I am your host and I am joined as always by my co-host and good friend, Bryce Kirk. Bryce, how are you doing today, my friend?
1: I am doing well. It's uh, it's a cold start to the year here, Michael. It's very cold, but I'm glad to be back here uh, with you recording. It has been a long time.
0: Yeah, we have not recorded a podcast episode in quite some time, have we?
1: Yeah, I think it's... Uh, uh, eh, that doesn't matter. It's just been a long time. I'm not <laughs> going to get into how long it's been, but yeah, we're busy. Well-
0: It it, well, we've both been so busy. Life has really been happening at full speed. I think for both of us, and Hmm. uh, you're right. It's not good to make excuses. the The important thing is that we are here and we are back at it. And I'm really excited to record another episode here tonight of our Coming Out of Chaos podcast. And we've had an exciting series going on the core values of the Antiochian men. So I'm looking forward to. Going on with our next in those values, and tonight we're going to be talking about endurance and a couple of saints that we feel really exhibited that that virtue, that value of endurance. But before we get there, I just wanted to mention, so much has happened since the last time we recorded an episode, and we've been planning a really, really exciting big event that's coming. The first ever in-person Antiochian Men Conference and Retreat is happening very soon, actually, as of the time of this recording, it's only wow, I mean, it's less than two months away. It's going to happen March 7th through the 9th, and it's going to be at the Woodland Christian Camp and Retreat Center in Temple, Georgia. And Bryce, we've already got 86 men registered as of the time of this recording, and there's only 60, I think, 64 spaces left. So we we've already had such an overwhelming response to how many we've seen registering, and even a lot of people from outside our diocese. It's really exciting, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I would say so. It's um, it's it's a unifying process, I think. Getting all sorts of different folks there um, from all sorts of different jurisdictions, and you know, guys who aren't even Orthodox yet, catechumens, inquirers. Like this is a really special thing. And it's a big opportunity for brotherhood, I think. And, uh, I mean, the title of this retreat, Michael says enough to me, the audacity of manhood, that's quite the eye catcher. So I'm hoping that, uh, I'm hoping that over the course of this retreat, that we learn more about what that means. And I think we got some really good speakers lined up and, uh, you know, thanks for reminding me. I need to sign up myself.
0: Yeah, that's right. Mindset. We've got we've got people requesting to be your roommate, buddy, and you're not even registered yet. What's going on with that?
1: Uh, you know, you got to keep the people waiting sometimes, <laughs> but but not for too long. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a humbling experience. I, I appreciate that.
0: You got to give the people what they want, my brother. Uh, I'll tell mm. you, though, that, that title is a strong one, The Audacity of Manhood. The subtitle is Strength Through Virtuous Work. And as you mentioned, we have just a, an incredible lineup of speakers. We've got His Grace Bishop Nicholas, we've got Father Stephen de Young. Father Hans Jacobsy, of course, and we also have Father Jacob on Dune. So we're we're gonna have a loaded event, but it's not just talks. That's what's so cool about this. We're gonna be doing outdoor activities, we're doing sports competitions, we're gonna have all kinds of things going on, workshops, fellowship around the campfire. I mean, there's never been an event like this. This is truly a unique first of its kind experience. And and I've been saying this, Bryce, and I I think you would agree because you've been involved in the planning. I mean, then we're incorporating the best aspects of conferences retreats and camping. Honestly, just going together and building brotherhood together. There's going to be so much fun to be had at this event, wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, you know, it, it kind of brings a lot of elements from Well, I think from uh from when I was a kid and I used to go to camp, right? And I a lot of the friendships I made at camp, uh they last a long time. Yeah. You know, and being out there <clears throat> kind of in that scenario where you're with just a bunch of guys and you guys all have the same goal in mind. You guys have the same things that you're working toward and maybe even different things that you're working toward, but you're trying to, you know, you're trying to do that together. I think there's a lot to be offered from that. And uh, like you mentioned, the speakers are going to be fantastic. So um, definitely something to look forward to. And uh, I I think it's going to be great.
0: Yeah, and I thought I would just mention one more thing. I was going to bring this up at the end of the episode, but, you know, we had a really great idea to do a live recording of Coming Out of Chaos at the Antiochian Men Conference and Retreat. And, you know, after this episode, there's really one left in the series, and that's for love, right? The overarching value, core value of the Antiochian Men. So the idea that that I had, I know I, I discussed this with you, is that we would ask everyone who's coming to bring with them... First of all, just be prepared to talk about who their patron saint is and and how that patron saint exhibited that love virtue, love for Christ, love for his neighbor throughout his life. You know, I thought that would be a great way to really bring the series home. What do you think about that idea?
1: I think that's solid. I mean, uh, the last time we were live and in person um, was probably one of my favorite uh, experiences doing this. Yeah. um being able to hear from the men when we were at the fall retreat for our diocese in 2022 at St. Ignatius Orthodox Church in in Franklin, Tennessee. Um we had several men there and being able to hear from from them about their experiences and, you know, some of the things that they had said, some of the questions that they had asked. Um it was a really special thing and Michael you and I being able to do that and be there. Um I, I'm, you know, I think we're both very blessed to have been able to do that. And uh, God willing, we'll get another chance to do it. And maybe that's in March. Yeah. I don't want to say anything for sure yet, folks, but <laughs> uh, but maybe that's in March. So it, it'll be a good time.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I'll just say, uh, finally, on this event, you know, it's it's not going to be a super expensive event, right? We're not staying at a no. five-star resort or some kind of really ridiculous Uh, location where you have to pay a lot of money to stay in a hotel. This is a camp. And so we did that on purpose. We wanted to keep the cost low so as many men as possible could participate. Younger men wouldn't have a hard time affording it. So it's only $149 per person. And that includes lodging for two nights and six meals. That's really about as cheap as it gets. It's a really good value. The prices are going to be going up though on February the 2nd. They're going to go up by I think it's $35 per person. So, you know, it's it's as of the time of this recording, we got about a week and a half left before the prices increase. And, and there's a good chance that this is going to sell out. We're actually capping this at 150 participants. As I mentioned, we're at 86 now. And we've advertised on the Lord of Spirits podcast. We've had a lot of different uh, marketing and advertising happening. And it's really, it's got a lot of attention. And Bryce, just today you brought to my attention that we were identified as the number three uh, ranked out of 10 event that you cannot miss as far as Orthodox Christians events this year. Why don't you Mm. talk a little bit about that? How did you find out about that?
1: Yeah, so I saw it on X earlier uh, while I was scrolling around. X is, uh, for the folks who don't know, X is what Twitter used to be. And uh, I clicked on the link and I had this strange feeling that we were going to be in there (laughs) <laughs> and lo and behold, thank God we were. So
0: Bryce, it it was number three. I was surprised because it's the first time we've ever done an event. And there is all kinds of events on there that are well established and have been done many times. And because I, I think of how unique this event is, it's gotten people's attention and people are aware of it. The fact that that a, a news site, I think it was on, what was it? Religion Unplugged on the, the news website? I believe so. Yeah. The fact that they're even aware of it. I mean, that's great. And then they ranked us up there in the top three. That's that's saying something. So, hey, I mean, people are aware of it. It's going to be a good time. I personally think it'll be better than advertised. So if you're listening to this and you haven't registered, please go to AntiochianMen.org. That's where you can learn more about this event. We're going to have a great time. I think we should probably dive into the content for this episode now, Bryce. And as I mentioned, today we're going to be focused on endurance. And mm. we each of us have picked a saint. And in, uh, in this case, we're going to have you go first and talk about the saint that you picked. Why don't you start off with, with what that saint is? Who did you pick this time?
1: Sure. So I believe we had been brainstorming this episode since last summer. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the summer of 2023. Lots of buildup. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And we had just wrapped up um, our episode on vigilance. Yeah. And I um, I went to Vespers at my parish and normally I, I help serve in the altar or I chant, but this time I was standing uh, with the faithful. And as I was standing there, I was kind of thinking to myself, I'm like, All right, who should I pick for this, this one endurance? And I look over and I see the icon of St. Nectarios in the nave. Mm. And uh, I said to myself, I think that's who I should go with. And a big reason for that, a big reason why I know anything about his life, and maybe this is the same for several of you out there, um, is the film that came out in 2022 called Man of God.
0: Mm. That which- was such a good one.
1: Yeah, yeah. We actually, Michael, you and I got to see it with our parish community. I
0: right. Yeah.
1: And that was uh, that was a good time seeing that and being able to kind of understand and view the life of St. Nectarios and everything that he had to go through. Um, it was an excellent film. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's available to stream, I'm sure, plenty of spots. Uh, and you should go check it out. But um, So we're going to go ahead and dive into St. Nectarios. And a lot of our research for this episode came off of the Orthodox Church in America's website, and they have a great description of him. So uh, we're giving, giving all credit to them for this. Uh, we're kind of just repeating some of these things. But both St. Nectarios and Michael St., who I'm not going to say yet, uh, you'll learn about later, they both really exemplify this value, this, this virtue rather of endurance. Um, So we're going to go ahead and start with the beginning of the life of St. Nectarios. And then there's a few stories from when the Saint was young uh, that we really want to highlight here. So I'll go ahead and begin to read on St. Nectarios. So St. Nectarios, the great wonder worker of modern times was born Anastasius Cephalas in Celebria Thrace on October the 1st, 1846. Since his family was poor, Anastasius went to Constantinople when he was 14 in order to find work. Though he had no money, he asked the captain of a boat to take him, and the captain told him to take a walk and then come back. Anastasius understood and sadly walked away. The captain gave the order to start the engines, but nothing happened. After several unsuccessful attempts, he looked up into the eyes of Anastasius, who stood on the dock. Taking pity on the boy, the captain told him to come aboard. Immediately, the engine started and the boat began to
0: move. Wow, that just sounds like the classic story of a saint, or at least the classic beginning to a story of a saint's life, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. It's uh, it, it means to me, it means, you know, this this man is meant for very great things. I mean, he's a boy at the time, but right. great things. But uh, we'll go ahead and continue on that. Anastasius found a job with a tobacco merchant in Constantinople who did not pay him very much. In his desire to share useful information with others, Anastasius wrote down short maxims from spiritual books on the paper bags and packages of the tobacco shop. The customers would read them out of curiosity and might, perhaps, derive some benefits from them. The boy went about barefoot and in ragged clothing, but he trusted in God. Seeing that the merchant received many letters, Anastasius also wanted to write a letter. To whom could he write? Not to his parents, because there was no mail deliveries to his village. Not to his friends, because he had none. Therefore, he decided to write to Christ to tell him of his needs. My little Christ, he wrote, I do not have an apron or shoes. You send them to me. You know how much I love you. Anastasius sealed the letter and wrote on the outside to the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. On his way to mail the letter, he ran into the man who owned a shop opposite to the one in which he worked. The man asked him where he was going, and Anastasius whispered something in reply. Seeing the letter in his hands, the man offered to mail it for him since he was on his way to the post office. The merchant put the letter in his pocket and assured Anastasius that he would mail it with his own letters. The boy returned to the tobacco shop filled with happiness. When he took the letter from his pocket to mail it, the merchant happened to notice the address. Astonished and curious, the man could not resist opening the letter to read it. Touched by the boy's simple faith, the merchant placed some money in an envelope and sent it to him anonymously. Anastasius was filled with joy and he gave thanks to God. A few days later, seeing Anastasius dressed somewhat better than usual, his employer thought he had stolen money from him and began to beat him. Anastasius cried out, I have never stolen anything. My little Christ sent me the money. Hearing the commotion, the other merchant came and took the tobacco seller aside and explained the situation to him. Mm. You know, the reason we want to start with this story is that it really foreshadows the life of St. Nectarios as he gets older Mm -hmm. and especially after he receives the monastic tonsure and becomes a deacon and moves to Egypt. Um, And as we'll see, he faces quite a bit of unjust persecution in his life. And this story shows it started all the way back to when he was a young boy.
0: Yeah, Bryce, that's such a a great point. I mean, so many of the saints lived through just intense unjust persecution and You know, we're talking about endurance here and the kind of endurance that you need when facing unjust persecution or really any kind of suffering. You have to have the mental strength, the mental fortitude, in many cases, physical strength. I mean, in this story, the poor boy was getting beaten physically, right? I mean, to endure that physically while also mentally and spiritually keeping your cool, keeping your faith in God. I mean, how many of the saints do we hear about that were persecuted in the early church or in the early Roman Empire, right? And were in the Colosseum being torn to bits by animals. I mean, terrible things happening. And and the persecution wasn't just a short period of time. In some cases there were tortures, in some cases they were they were, you know, people on the run, underground, and the endurance necessary, it was an it was an ongoing thing. It just wasn't a short period of time, Bryce, was it?
1: No, no, it wasn't. And, uh, you know, for many, um, it did endure. And, and at times the only time that it really ended was at their death,
0: Yeah, you
1: know, and their martyrdom.
0: Yeah. And this story here of, of when, you know, St. Noctarius was a boy, I mean, just starting out is really in the teenage years being exposed to this, as you said, it's, it's kind of a, a sign of what would come later. Really. It's kind of like a microcosm of his life in this short story about when he was in his teenage years.
1: Right. And I think the important thing about that too is that he exercises humility from a very young age, Mm -hmm. you know, yes, he, he kind of defends himself. Yeah. I've never stolen anything, Yeah, but he takes those hits. Right. And he's, he's very joyful. And, um, you know, our Lord says you must become like a little child right to Inherit at the kingdom of heaven. And, uh, you know, he's a teenager here, but he has a very simple faith. You know, he has, he doesn't need to be an intellectual. He doesn't need to break it, break it all down. It's, it's kind of just happening and he's absorbing it as it happens. So we'll go ahead and continue then. Uh, when he was still a young man Anastasius made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. During the voyage, the ship was in danger of sinking in a storm. Anastasius looked at the raging sea and then at the captain. He went and stood beside the captain and took the helm, praying praying for God to save them. Then he took off the cross his grandmother had given him, containing a piece of the true cross of Christ, and tied it to his belt. Leaning over the side, he dipped the cross into the water three times and commanded the sea, silence, be still. At once the wind died down and the sea became calm. Anastasius was saddened, however, because his cross had fallen into the sea and was lost. As the boat sailed on, sounds of knocking seemed to come from the hull below the waterline. When the ship docked, the young man got off and started to walk away. Suddenly, the captain began shouting, Cephalus, Cephalus, come back here. The captain had ordered some men into a small boat to examine the hull in order to discover the source of the knocking. And they discovered the cross stuck to the hull. Anastasius was elated to receive his treasure and always wore it from that time forward. There's a photograph taken many years later showing the saint in his monastic scoffia. The cross is clearly visible in the photo. So I want to stop there and talk about this a little bit. This was at a time when the saint was still a young man. Mm -hmm. And yet we already see him performing miracles. These great, uh, these great works Really, as a young man. Um, yeah,
0: I mean, he's not even uh, a monk or or any kind no. of clergy yet. I mean, he's a young man and these things are happening. It just, I think that speaks to how pious he was even in his youth.
1: Right, and it definitely speaks to how impactful faith is mm. in elements like this, you know, because uh, when you're in a storm at the Raging Sea, right, and really the storm of life at times, you know, to make that analogy, you can, you can get really afraid. Yeah, You know, you can forget to pray. You know, you can look to blame other people. You can, you know, do so many things aside from have faith in God. And yet that's the first thing that he did. And this took a little bit of courage here. Yeah. Um, stepping up beside the captain and taking the helm and praying for God to save them and tying it to his belt you know, leaning over the side. I mean, that, that takes some, you know, that takes some guts, man. Yeah.
0: And he remained calm. Like you were saying earlier, Mm -hmm. he was calm and cool and collected. And the other thing, I mean, this is something that was not in the movie, man of God. I know that this wasn't. So I love the fact that you've picked a couple of stories here from his childhood, from when he was a, a young man. And from when he was a teenager, you know, I wish this would have been in the movie. <laughs> this is this is some yeah. epic stuff that you're hearing here. And and I think it's really interesting, too, that, that two of the miracles that were happening that you described, they happened aboard a ship. And we've talked before how the church is often referred to as a ship and sometimes even built like a ship. I know when we go to St. Elias in Atlanta, it kind of looks like a ship from the inside. And I think that's really on purpose in the architecture of, of the church itself. And I can't help but see important imagery with these miracles. The fact that, you know, he's in in two instances here on a ship and miracles are happening. And it even reminds me of St. Paul, right, with the shipwreck in the book of Acts. And uh, that that imagery of the ship is just so interesting to me.
1: Yeah. And there's many, many stories uh, of the saints and, you know, from the scriptures relating that. You mentioned St. Paul um, who could who could forget the prophet Jonah? Yeah, you know, on the ship there as well. Um, these are impactful moments, right. right? And you you know you compare you compare the church to being a ship, and it can be assailed at times. Yeah, and, uh, there can be you know mistrust from outside the ship, from within the ship. You know, all types of enemies, all types of of obstacles that need to be overcome. But the church remains.
0: Yeah, and and what's important too, and I'm glad you brought that up, Bryce, it's important that there are strong men ready to take the helm, ready to make the decisions that need to be made, that there's strength in leadership too in the church, regardless of the storm that may be hitting it, right? The, the, The church is our refuge. The ship itself won't be overtaken as long as we have good, strong leadership which otherwise it could lead to chaos. Right.
1: Right. Right. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it's important too, to remember that the faithful exist both within the church building and without, you know, without the church building and, uh, our strength comes really from us as the church body, the church militant. Right. Right. So, um, we'll go ahead and move on then. On November 7th, 1875, this is much later, by the way, uh, Anastasius received monastic tonsure at the Neomoni Monastery in Chios, and and the new name Lazarus. Two years later, he was ordained a deacon. On that occasion, his name was changed to Nectarius. Later, when he was a priest, Father Nectarius left Chios and went to Egypt. There he was elected Metropolitan of Petopolis. Some of his colleagues became jealous of him because of his great virtues, because of his inspiring sermons, and because of everything else which distinguished St. Nectarios from them. Other Metropolitans and bishops of the Patriarchate of Alexandria became filled with malice toward the saint, so they told Patriarch Sophronius that Nectarios was planning to become Patriarch himself. They told the Patriarch that the Metropolitan of Pentopolis merely made an outward show of piety in order to win favor with the people. So the Patriarch and his Synod removed St. Nectarius from his see. Patriarch Sophronius wrote an ambiguous letter of suspension which provoked scandal and speculation about the true reasons for the Saints' removal from his position. St. Nectarius was not deposed from his rank, however. He was still allowed to function as a bishop. If anyone invited him to perform a wedding or a baptism, he could do so, as long as he obtained permission from the local bishop. So this, I mean, if we're talking about endurance in this episode, which we are, mm-hmm. um, he endures a great amount of persecution and none of which he brought upon himself. Yeah. And that really shows a lot about who he is um, at this point in time as a bishop. Uh, he was elevated rather quickly, as I recall, to become a bishop Yeah, in terms of his age in terms of how long he'd been uh, a clergyman. And so a lot of people who perhaps may were may have been stagnant in their way of life really did not appreciate his zeal or his vigor. Yeah,
0: that's right. It exposed maybe a little bit of complacency among people. And what's interesting is there was so much jealousy that was driving that malice, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, they didn't like that about him, and they wanted him out of there. Mm-hmm. But he, he endures all of that with, with patience yeah, with endurance, as we'll learn, as we'll learn further here. St. Nectarius bore his trials with great patience, but those who loved him began to demand to know why he had been removed. Seeing that this was causing a disturbance in the church of Alexandria, he decided to go to Greece. He arrived in Athens to find that false rumors about him had already reached that city. His letter of suspension said only that he had been removed for reasons known to the Patriarchate, and so all the slanders about him were believed. Since the state and ecclesiastical authorities would not give him a position, the former Metropolitan was left with no means of support and no place to live. Every day he went to the minister of religion asking for assistance. They soon tired of him and began to mistreat him.
0: Wow. I mean, it just goes from bad to worse, doesn't it, Bryce?
1: it does at this point and uh you know it can be kind of relatable i mean um, yeah you know people at, at points in their lives i think most of us you know we experience times when there's false information said yeah. you know uh if i you know, i remember when i was a kid you know being in in elementary school you know people were and this is kids gossip Right. So it doesn't quite compare to this, but
0: not exactly the same, but it can start at any level. I mean, in this case, this was really serious. And this is something that was putting his livelihood at stake and his reputation. And it was just it was outright wrong. Right. It was just it was it was hateful. (laughs) It's just not right.
1: Yeah, that's true. And he still continues to be, you know, he still continues to make efforts. Mm-hmm. he he kind of he doesn't give up right like they got tired of him and they began to treat him poorly yeah and yet he continued to go every single day to the minister of religion and he he was just looking for help and he never gave up though
0: they did a really good job in the the film man of god of portraying this i mean i know film sometimes takes some liberties with history but i feel like the film did a really good job of capturing it kind of the the situation that he was in and the feeling and just the context. And uh, I remember watching that and thinking, man, this is just so unfair. And, and yet at the same time, I was thinking about, you know, this was someone who became a saint because of the fact that he went through all of the suffering. And like you were saying, facing it with, with patience and having the endurance to press on and never losing his faith. It's, it's definitely the different path, towards sainthood than some of the other saints that we read about some of the martyrs that were tortured physically to death, but this is a different kind of endurance, but it's no less worthy of sainthood, right?
1: Uh, absolutely. And, uh, I've got this from the, uh, American Carpatho-Russian Orthodox diocese website. Uh, and this is something that Metropolitan Bloom said about this situation. And he said that, uh, the church has a glorious aspect and a tragic one, and the disagreements among priests and their bishop, conflicts among priests and parishioners, fights among parishioners, court cases, insults, envy, jealousy, politics, anger, backbiting, gossiping, all can be found in churches which preach and teach love, truth, joy, kindness, and peace. And the life of St. Nectarios is a potent illustration of this. He didn't suffer from unbelievers or Roman emperors or communist officials, but for his fellow Orthodox Christian priests and yeah. bishops.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Right. In America, and this is what uh, is said here in America, he would hire a lawyer and sue for defamation of character.
0: Right. That's exactly what would happen. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And today he says today he would quit the church hmm. <laughs> and, you know, but St. Nectarios accepted this, with silence and humility. And he recognized that the church is not a garden for saints, but a hospital for sinners.
0: Hmm. That's really beautiful.
1: Right. And the church itself is holy. It's the body of Christ on earth, but it is composed of weak, sinful fallen people. Exactly. Right. So when, when we think about him, we also have to kind of remember that these things happen. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I've mentioned this on, on the podcast before, but I remember our old priest, Father John, telling me once, you know, when he first came into the church, everyone had these pretty angel wings, you know, and as you're in the church longer, you kind of see those, those wings get clipped down a little mm-hmm. bit. You get to see how, how people can act, how people can treat each other and, and yourself too.
0: Yeah. Maybe not everyone has them all the time or at right. all <laughs> when we right. thought they did. Yeah.
1: Exactly, exactly. But we'll we'll continue here, too. Uh, so one day as he was leaving the minister's office, St. Nectarios met a friend who he had known in Egypt, surprised to find the beloved bishop in such a condition. The man spoke to the minister of religion and education and asked that something be found for him. So St. Nectarios was appointed to be a humble preacher in the diocese of Vitania and Euboea. Uh, the saint did not regard this as humiliating for him, even though a simple monk could have filled that position. He went to Euboea and preached in the churches, eagerly embracing his duties. Yet even here, the rumors of scandal followed him. Sometimes while he was preaching, people began to laugh and whisper. Therefore, the blameless one resigned his position and returned to Athens. By then, some people had begun to realize that the rumors were untrue because they saw nothing in his life or conversation to suggest that he was guilty of anything. With their help and influence, Saint Mactarius was appointed director of the Rosarius Seminary in Athens on March eighth eighteen ninety four He was to remain at that position until December of nineteen o eight
0: you know bryce i have to I have to interrupt and and just say that there's a scene in the movie Man of God that that I just i it brings it to mind, and it's actually my favorite scene in the film where his secretary at the seminary says to Saint Nectarios and it's a quote that's even in the trailer of the film he says you seem to be the real deal no wonder they don't like you right yeah. that's just it's such a great line but it captures the essence of that 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 context of the situation that he really is the real deal and that's why they don't like him right
1: that's right uh, and the truth the truth comes out doesn't it yeah it does it kind of always does one way or another in this life or the next the truth comes out. Um, and it does remind me too, it's been a couple of years since I've seen the film, but uh, there's a point when he is giving a homily in the church. And I believe people are either leaving or they're really treating him disrespectfully. And yet he continues doing what he was doing. Yeah. So going forward here, the saints celebrated the services in the seminary church and taught the students and wrote several edifying and useful books. Since he was a quiet man, St. Nectarios did not care for the noise and bustle of Athens. He wanted to retire somewhere where he could pray. On the island of Aegina, he found an abandoned monastery dedicated to the Holy Trinity, which he began to repair with his own hands. He gathered a community of nuns, appointing the blind nun Zenia as an abbess, while he himself served as father confessor. Since he had a new gift for spiritual direction, many people came to Agena to confess to him. Eventually, the community grew to 30 nuns. He used to tell them, I am building a lighthouse for you, and God shall put a light in it that will shine forth to the world. Many will see this light and come to Aegina. They did not understand what he was telling them, that he himself would be that beacon and that people would come there to venerate his holy relics. He continues to put in the work.
0: Yeah, he sure does. Over
1: the course of his life, you know, yeah, when he says he wants to retire to a monastery, it's not like uh, you know you're retiring to Boca Raton, (laughs) you know, and playing playing golf all the time.
0: Right, and he got his hands dirty. He was willing to get to work to repair the monastery with his own hands. This is someone, you know, again, our the theme of our upcoming Antiochian Men Conference and Retreat the audacity of manhood, the audacity means taking bold risks and you're seeing the life of a man who not only took bold risks, but he truly was a strong man who was working very hard throughout his life. He didn't stop. Retiring didn't mean he was just going to sit on the couch for the rest of his life. Right.
1: Right. And, you know, I remember when we were watching the movie and, uh, and earlier, you know, when I was, I was kind of prepping for this episode too. Um, He would carry the stones around. He would help work on stuff. He would tend to the garden. Yeah. Um, And his cassock would get all raggedy and all dirtied up from the work that he was doing. Yeah, right. But he still, he still, you know, kept going. And there's even, and I remember this too from the film, there was even people who accused him when he was there as an old man. You know, yeah. that uh, that ministry came in and tried to investigate him for accusations that were, again, not true.
0: Yeah, for having inappropriate relationships with the nuns, which was not happening. And yeah, that was a very kind of disturbing and graphic scene towards the end where they were doing, uh, you know, they actually did examinations of the nuns to, to try to prove that he was doing it because they couldn't believe that he wouldn't have done something like that. It's... Yeah, it was really, it was really crazy. But yeah, I mean, I didn't know about any of this until I saw that film. And then and now I mean, again, reading about his life, it it also just fills in so much more. You know, the film, the film is a great starting point, but we really have to read the stories of the saints, read about their lives, read about their writings or things that they said. We learned so much from it. And that's been, I think, a huge blessing and a benefit from doing these episodes on such powerful saints, examples to us really as Antiochian men.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's always important to, uh, you know, try to read the lives of the saints or sayings from the fathers and you get you know, you get an impression of who they were and the lives that they lived. And, you know, I talk about them in the past tense, but they're still alive today. Yeah. They intercede that's for us, you know. So wrapping up here on uh, on this information from the OCA website. On September 20th, 1920, the nun Euphemia brought an old man in black robes who was obviously in pain to a hospital in Athens. This was a state hospital for the poor. The intern asked the nun for information about the patient. Is he a monk, he asked. No, he is a bishop. The intern laughed and said, stop joking and tell me his name, mother, so that I can enter it in the register. He is indeed a bishop, my child. He is the most reverend metropolitan of Pentapolis. The intern muttered, for the first time in my life, I see a bishop without a panagia or a cross, and more significantly, without money. <laughs> then the nun showed the saint's credentials. Yeah, I know, that's... That's interesting. Yeah. Then, then the nun showed the saints credentials to the astonished intern who then admitted him. For two months, St. Nectarios suffered from a disease of the bladder. Hmm. Um, yeah. And it turned, comes to find out, I believe he had prostate cancer.
0: Yeah. So and there are so many saints that did endure intense, you know, real critical illnesses. I think of St. Paisios with cancer mm-hmm. and and his situation, where towards the end of his life he was in constant pain, and, and again we're talking about physical, intense physical suffering. I mean, the endurance to to endure that is That's right. For what it takes to really to to really endure something like that, to maintain your faith, to maintain your prayer rule, like all of these things with the intense physical pain, it takes it to a, a whole nother level, doesn't it, Bryce?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it causes you to self-reflect a little bit, mm. you know, if I, if I miss my, my prayers, you know, cause I don't feel like doing them or, you know, I'm a little under the weather yeah, stuff like this makes you want to step up a little bit. You yeah. know, we talk about physical pain too. Uh, when we were talking about, um, St. Alfred, yeah. you know, he had to endure severe physical pain for much of his life, but he remained faithful and that, That type of endurance, and I think especially as men, because a lot of us, you know, we like to boost ourselves up, you know, we're strong, we're tough, you know, I'm not sick, you know, I'm not this, I'm not that. Um, It's one thing to try and do that and rely on your own self endurance, but that only lasts so long. Mm -hmm. We can't, we can't do that. And um, we, we can't do that successfully.
0: You know, Bryce, the thing that you just reminded me of something else from the film, there's there's in one scene, he sits in the street with a beggar and gives him his own shoes. And he says something to the beggar that it, it's so appropriate for what you just said. He says, and I'm quoting from the film, when the Lord becomes your only hope, it's then that one can feel his presence. Right. I mean, that's so powerful, right? When, and I think about, you know, we've talked about, You know, and I brought up during Great Lent. You know, we're attending more services. I brought up that that time when we did the all night vigil, and I was just exhausted, and I was just like ready to just fall on my face. And then I was, I knew that I was completely relying on God. But that was what was so beautiful in that. It was truly what Saint Paul talks about: Uh, when I'm weak, I'm strong. Right? Because Mm -hmm. when you only have the Lord as your only hope, that's when you actually do feel his presence, it's exactly what was said in that film. Right. And it's what you're describing when you're maybe faced with an intense physical illness or some kind of very painful, you know, situation of suffering, you realize how much more you need to rely on God. Right.
1: Absolutely. It's, uh, it's in those moments when I think we really come back to it, at least, you know, based on my experience, right. And maybe yours too. Um, you know oftentimes we forget to thank god when the times are good and even mm. then it, it can be easier to do it then but you know it you can be forgetful about it right how we yeah. perceive the times to be good but uh when we say glory to god for all things i think we we're supposed to try to mean all things
0: not just even, the good times not just the right. the the things we think are blessings it's all of it right
1: right and i remember you know recently in my life coming out of things that I had perceived to be great deals of suffering, you know, uh, great, great torments that I was perceiving that I was having and really coming out of them and having what seems like a solution or an end to them, thanking God for that. It's Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, you know, this period of exhaustion, this period of feeling, Oh, it's off my back now. Yeah. You know, but uh, it, it requires great amount of endurance to, Really persevere through that, and so here, here we have the end of Saint Nectarios' life here on Earth with us at 10:30 on the evening of November the eighth, nineteen twenty. Saint Nectarios surrendered his holy soul to God. He died in peace at the age of seventy-four. In the bed next to Saint Nectarios was a man who was paralyzed. As soon as the saint had breathed his last, the nurse and the nun who sat with him began to dress him in clean clothing to prepare him for burial at Agina. They removed his sweater and placed it on the paralyzed man's bed. Immediately, the paralytic got up from his bed, glorifying God.
0: Yeah, Bryce, and that's something we see in the last scene of the film, Man of God, is mm-hmm. that very kind of theatrical, that, that kind of shocking miracle where the paralytic kind of gets up out of his bed and, you know, just it's it's interesting too because you go back to the beginning of of his life and those stories you were telling about his childhood, about his when he was younger, and, and there were miracles involved there. So it's it's just so appropriate, right? That the beginning of this saint's life contained miracles, and so did the very end of his life, ending with a miracle, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, I remember that scene, and I was sitting next to uh, our parish priest. Father Paul, and he leans over to me and, uh, <laughs> this is Mickey Rourke. He points out that it's Mickey Rourke who plays the paralytic. That's right. Um, and if you know anything about Mickey Rourke and some of the characters he plays, he's kind of a mm-hmm. gruff guy, you mm-hmm. know, he's kind of a, kind of a tough dude. And, um, seeing him playing somebody who is humbled by paralysis, you know, being <laughs> humbled, being next to this man, um, it's it's incredible. But yeah, you mentioned that it goes throughout his entire life, right? Uh, he remains faithful and steadfast through beatings, through uh, storms, through persecutions, through all sorts of different things. But he remains humble and he practices humility and all that. And he endures to the end. And so St. Nectarios was then buried at the Holy Trinity Monastery on Agena. And several years later, his grave was opened to remove his bones, which is the custom in Greece. His body was found whole and incorrupt as if he had been buried that very day. The word was sent to the Archbishop of Athens who came to see the relics for himself. Archbishop Christostomos told the nuns to leave them out in the sun for a few days, then rebury them so they would decay. A month or two after this, they opened the grave again and found the saint incorrupt. Then the relics were placed in a marble sarcophagus. Several years later, the holy relics dissolved, leaving only the bones. The saint's head was placed in a bishop's mitre, and the top was opened to allow people to kiss his head. St. Nectarius was glorified by God, since his whole life was a continuous doxology to the Lord. Both during his life and after his death, St. Nectarius has performed thousands of miracles, especially for those suffering from cancer. There are more churches dedicated to St. Nectarius than to any other modern Orthodox saint.
0: Wow. I actually didn't know that, that there's more churches dedicated to St. Nectarios than any other modern Orthodox saint. That's, that's interesting. And that's, that's something I didn't know prior to doing the research for this episode. And, and what a great saint you picked, Bryce. I mean, St. Nectarios really was a great example of a saint who exhibited a, a great amount of endurance throughout his life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, reading about him over the last little bit here, um, it's been a blessing to kind of see into his life a little bit, and the last time I was in Arkansas, Michael, I actually picked up a copy of *The Habitation of Holiness*, which is selections from the writings of Saint Nectarios.
0: Mm, okay, it's,
1: reading through it uh, briefly has been—it's been a beautiful experience—and uh, hearing his commentary on on things on, in the church and on the clergy, and um, really on the life in Christ has been. It's been great. It's been great to see it. and I, I can't, I can find a better word, but uh, it's been wonderful. So that's all I have on about St. Nectarius. And uh, I'm anxious to hear now about the saint that you have chosen. We haven't mentioned him yet.
0: That's right. Well, there's been so much buildup. We should have the reveal now. So <laughs> I decided to focus on the life of where's that drum roll? That's okay. We don't need one. <laughs> the life of St. John Maximovich, who is also called the Wonder Worker, and he's known as the Archbishop of Shanghai and San Francisco. Yeah, uh, I, I actually found a book that included a brief description of the life of St. John Maximovich. And actually, Bryce, Father Paul uh, Father Paul Fuller, our parish priest here in Springdale, he found this book and ordered it. And when it came in, I took a look and I was like, wow, this looks amazing. And the book is called Glorified in America. And it's a book that has kind of a, a brief history of all these saints from North America. And St. John Maximovich was one of them. So much of what I'll be sharing will be from that book, which is an awesome book, by the way. You all should definitely check it out. But just as you did, Bryce, I'm going to start at the beginning of his life. So let's kind of dive into the life of St. John Maximovich. St. John Maximovich was born on June 4, 1896, in the small town of Adamivka, in the Kharkiv district in modern-day Ukraine. His parents had descended from nobility. His father's ancestors were of Serbian descent and had migrated to Russia during the Ottoman occupation of Serbia. One of his mother's great-grandfathers was a saint of the church, St. John Bishop of Tobolsk who lived at the end of the 17th century and had been canonized in 1916. St. John of San Francisco was born Michael Maximovich. And as a side note, Bryce, I did not know that he was born with the same name as myself. Uh, So as I was, I was doing this research, it was one more connection I had with St. John that, I had no idea that he actually was named Michael at birth, which makes Mm -hmm. me like him a little bit more. I mean, it's just the best name right in the world. I'm biased, but who is
1: like God? Yeah,
0: (laughs) Right. It's just a cool fact. I didn't know. So it was it was Michael Maximovich when he was born. His parents chose that name in honor of the archangel, best angel in the world. (laughs) 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 Again, bias. In his youth, Michael could not decide whether to follow a military or civil career track, which were two of the more socially acceptable career choices for young men at the time, and ones that promised stability and upward mobility. Finally, he decided on the former and began his studies in the military academy of Poltava, where he was a model student. However, despite his academic success, there were two lessons which he intensely disliked. And I thought this was funny, Bryce gymnastics, and dance. And I have to relate to that. I think I wouldn't have enjoyed that either. <laughs> but both of those were required at the time. On the day of Michael's graduation from Military Academy, it happened that Archbishop Anthony Krapovitsky was being elevated to the see of Kharkov, the diocese to which the city of Poltava belonged. It was this Archbishop Anthony who was to become the spiritual guide and lifelong luminary for Michael. The Archbishop happened to be informed of the charismatic personality and academic gifts of the new graduate in his diocese, and asked to meet with him in person after this meeting, the young man put himself under the spiritual and fatherly guidance of the bishop, where he remained until the end of the latter's life in nineteen thirty eight and I want to pause right there, Bryce, because this is this is such a perfect example of what we talk about all the time with the Antiochian men and what his grace Bishop Nicholas talks about which is the importance of having a spiritual father. But but even beyond that, in the Antiochian men, of being mentors and being a guide, a spiritual guide to somebody, there's so much value in that. And here's the example of a saint in the church that had exactly that, the spiritual and fatherly guidance of a bishop and how important that must have been in shaping his life, especially early on. Wouldn't you agree, Bryce? Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, definitely. And, um, kind of God's timing here too, Mm. you know, the archbishop hearing that he's going to graduate, he's recently been elevated to this sea in which, you know, Michael St. John Maximovich lived at the time. And, uh, you know, it, it fits in perfectly and being able to have that guidance, you know, and especially of a bishop, that's a wonderful thing to have. And, You know, one of the tenets of the Antiochian men, and I think one of the tenets of orthodoxy in general, is finding a spiritual father and establishing that relationship. And to be quite honest, that can be very, very difficult to do.
0: Yeah, it can be a hard adjustment, too, for people that aren't used to that as a concept of having a spiritual father, right? And in in the West, we're so used to questioning authority or thinking Mm -hmm. that we just need to maybe a consultant, and then maybe I can follow the advice or maybe I can find a different opinion, a second opinion, right?
1: Right, yeah. We're always uh, we're always trying to walk to the beat of our own drum or rather mm-hmm. march to the beat of our own drum. So even if you can find it, sometimes you squander it. But uh, I think as we'll learn further, that, that isn't the case here.
0: Yeah, and we'll continue on. Before I do continue, though, I think it's interesting here, the fact that he did have such a good foundation laid with having spiritual and fatherly guidance of a bishop early on, that foundation, having a strong foundation to build upon would be needed because as we're going to see, he needed a lot of endurance to face what he was going to be faced with. And so that endurance could only happen with a strong foundation. So... Having that spiritual father, having someone to mentor you, that's kind of what prepares you for those things in life where you're going to need some endurance to get through it. So I'll continue on here with with the story. Michael's soul was blooming with spiritual desire, but he had not yet reached the point of his life-altering decision. Having resolved on a non-military career path, he continued his studies at the law school in Kharkov, which he graduated in 1918. Following his graduation, he began to work as a lawyer, and though he applied himself, his heart was not in it. He spent all of his free time studying spiritual books and reading the lives of the saints. In 1921, after the Russian Civil War, which followed the Bolshevik Revolution, the Maximovich family was forced to flee their fatherland and settle in Belgrade, at that time the capital of Yugoslavia. The bloody events which upended his homeland were to prove the catalyst for Michael's final turn away from the world. Seeing the glory of imperial Russia now in ashes, and all that he had grown to admire, love, and fight for destroyed, he realized that the world was a temporal, fleeting, ever-changing thing on which one could never anchor their life. It was then and there that the young man finally decided to follow a life dedicated to the one and only everlasting kingdom, that of heaven. He enrolled at the Theological School of the University of St. Sava in Belgrade, from which he graduated in 1925. And, you know, Bryce, thinking about just how devastating it must have been for St. John Maximovich to witness the events of the Russian Civil War and the Bolshevik Revolution and how things like that, they just really stick with someone their whole life. If you go through something that traumatic— Right. It, it can be it can be life changing. It can be perspective changing. And this is at a point in history where anyone that would have gone through that, it, it had to have changed them. Right.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, during this time, the church in Russia faced a great deal of persecution. Mm-hmm. I mean, really beginning with the, you know, the revolution in October of that year and the, the deposing of Tsar Nicholas II and his family. And then their their murder at the hand of the Bolsheviks as well. Um, You kind of see your life topple. Your life turns from one direction to a completely different one. It all gets
0: turned upside down, right?
1: Right, right. And, you know, with St. John, he's kind of, he's trying to discern things, I think, at this point in his life. And everyone kind of needs a catalyst, Right in their life for, for yeah. decision-making for, you know, they kind of have to have that moment or that period of time where things have changed and things have happened. They have to, they have to make a decision there and, and that's what happened here. But that is a, that is a pinnacle point in world history, not just Russian history. Yeah. And I think, especially, you know, for the United States too, um, I don't want to spoil it, you know, but with, uh, with St. John, you know, this helped inspire some of his ministry, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. And we will get to that. During the last year of his studies, he was tonsured a reader by his spiritual father, who had also fled to Yugoslavia and was living in Belgrade. The next year, following a request from the young reader, Metropolitan Anthony tonsured Michael a monk at the Holy Monastery of the Entrance of the Theotokos, giving him the name John in honor of his ancestor, St. John of Tobolsk. Soon after, he was ordained a deacon, and on the feast of the entrance of the Theotokos, his new monastery's feast day, he was ordained to the holy priesthood. After the completion of his theological studies, St. John was appointed professor of religious studies at the Serbian Theological Seminary of St. John the Theologian in Bitola. It was precisely during this time, at the beginning of his professional tenure, that St. John's great ascetic endeavors became known. He would liturgize every day except on rare occasions when he would participate as a layman and receive Holy Communion. His prayer was unceasing, and his fasts were extremely strict. He would eat nothing during the entire first week of Great Lent, and nothing during Holy Week. During the rest of Great Lent, he would only eat antidoron. Even on normal days, he ate very little, usually only one meal a day, around 11 o'clock at night. It was not long before St. John earned the affection and respect of his students, and with genuine fatherly love, he elevated their spiritual ideals. The students would look to his face and see all the biblical virtues incarnate in the life of their holy professor. He would pray for them earnestly with zeal, which they both knew and felt, and they were spiritually drawn to him and his example. Every night the saint would walk through the students' dorm after they were asleep, making sure they were well. He would pick up their blankets from the floor, cover them, and before he left, bless the room and all the students in it individually with the sign of the cross. The seminarians were the first to discover his ascetic endeavors and his secret spiritual gifts. During his appointed leisure hours, they would always find him praying. He would never lay down in bed to sleep. Even after the exhaustion from nightly vigils and prayers set in, he would fall asleep on his knees in front of the icons as he was praying. He kept this practice throughout his life, and even in his later years when infirmity took over, he would only sleep for a couple hours at a time sitting on a chair in his cell. <laughs> you know, Bryce, listening to just how extreme his asceticism was, I mean, it's, it's hard not to admire his discipline and just the high level of asceticism that he was practicing and, and just talk about like ascetic discipline, talk about physicality. Right of Orthodox worship. We talk about that a lot, but usually not to this extreme. We can relate maybe a little bit with our experience Mm -hmm. during Great Lent when we step things up. But, you know, and, and I was actually just talking to someone that was new to the Orthodox Church, just visited our local parish this past Sunday, and he was asking me about fasting. And, you know, this often comes up with someone that is, you know, just discovering Orthodoxy for the first time and is asking, hey, what are the rules for fasting today? And, you know, I know it's uh, the feast of whatever saint it is. Does that mean that it's different than normal? And it's funny how, in a lot of cases, people are are well intentioned. They just they want to follow the rules, but there's such a danger there that they're trying to do it all themselves. That they're self prescribing. That they're not getting any advice about what maybe their season of life is, if they're brand new to orthodoxy, you know, we always say you got to start slow, right? That's usually what people will say. And you should also talk to your spiritual father so that it's not just Mm. you thinking you know what's best. Now, when you read about saints like this, like St. John Maximovich, who was at such a high level of strict ascetic discipline, it's easy to maybe idealize that or to think that maybe we should be doing that. And, you know, God willing, maybe we can raise the bar in our own spiritual lives. But uh, I think it would be a mistake to just assume that everybody should be at this level right away. Right.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think I think the important part of what you said was obedience too, Right. Um, I remember when I first came into the church and I looked up the fasting rules for Great Lent and I tried to follow it to a T. And when I'd mess up and I did, believe me, uh, (laughs) I messed up. I still do. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: I would just beat myself up, man, because I was like, oh, these are impossible standards. Yeah. But it's it's baby steps. Right. And that's uh, that's a lot of life. And I'm reminded, too, of uh, someone will have to let me know who it is. But um, I heard a story about a monastic who would do like a thousand prostrations a day or something. And his spiritual father told him, okay, do five (laughs) and doing five or 10 or however many it was, was much more difficult for him than doing a great number of prostrations. Right. So we look at this and, you know, we want to emulate it. And perhaps some of us in time, especially with direction from our spiritual father at some point, right. Yeah. Some of us who want to do that and our ascetical efforts really are put to the test during great Lent, regardless mm-hmm. of what we're doing, what, how we follow the fast. Right. And it's not even just about food. It's about everything else. It's about how do yeah. I treat my neighbor? How do I treat my, my roommate? How do I treat my wife? How do I treat my kids? You know, um, am I giving alms, right? Like we can look at this and like you said, Michael, we really can idealize it and we can kind of make it, crazy but i think i think we can relate to this with the experience during great lent you know long hours you mentioned earlier on in the episode right um doing the all-night vigil and uh not like either of us were reading the whole night but man it's (laughs) at the end of that 40-day period plus with all the great lent services you know if you're going to as many as you can yeah um it's it takes a great effort to do so but it's daunting yeah. Yeah, but it is all for Christ and this is an example of course of endurance, right?
0: It is. You're right. And and it's so true like now, I mean Bryce, I just turned 43. So I'm getting old, man. Like I <laughs> the prostrations the prostrations are much more difficult now than they used to be when I was your age, right? And I think sure. as we as we get older, you know, it people can relate to that. But it actually reminds me going back to Saint Nectarios. You know, in the Man of God, one of the first scenes that you see is him doing prostrations. And not mm-hmm. just one or two; he's doing many of them. And, right. You know, again, and I brought up Saint Paisios earlier. He was known for doing many, many prostrations, and and it can be very inspiring to know that there were men who lived that were that disciplined. Right? It's easy to admire that kind of asceticism and to 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 idealize it, to maybe put them on a pedestal, and and maybe that's not all bad. I mean, it's good to know that. There is a level of asceticism that we can strive for, right? We may not mm-hmm. reach it. We can, we can do our best, but the idea is incremental improvements in our own lives, taking our circumstances, taking our role, whether we're laity, clergy, monastics, we all have different, right, contexts of, of, of lives that we live, right? But it, still, this is very, very impressive. It's, it can, it's almost shocking to see the level of extreme asceticism that St. John Maximovich had at this point. But I'll continue on with the story. In 1934, the Synod of Bishops of Rokor, that's the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia, decided to elevate St. John to the Episcopacy, ordaining him to the See of Shanghai in China. This development was something that the saint would never have foreseen as illustrated by the following event. And Bryce, I have to say, this short story is probably my favorite Part of his entire life, so I'll go ahead and read it. Yeah, when he was called to Belgrade to be appraised of his elevation, he met a woman he knew on the bus. Not having seen each other for a long time, they were exchanging news and stories. And when she asked him why he was going to Belgrade, he answered, "There was a serious mailing error. The synod decided to ordain a bishop, and it so happens that his name is also Hieromonk John." So they accidentally sent the summons to me, unquote. <laughs> He was going to Belgrade to inform them of their error and to make sure the letter was forwarded to the correct future bishop. A few days later, he was on the bus returning from Belgrade and again saw his acquaintance. When she asked how his journey had been and if he had accomplished the, his task, he answered, quote, The mistake was far greater than I had anticipated As it was me they decided to ordain, unquote. Man, what a guy. (laughs) It's such a great picture of who the man was because you know when you're reading this, the kind of man that this is, he was sincere in that he thought it was a mistake. And he had the humility and he had the the mindset that no, it it can't be me. Like that has to be a mistake. Right? And, right, right. and then he finds out it wasn't. And then he says, the mistake was far greater than I anticipated because he sees himself as chief of all sinners, as we say yeah. in the, the Nicene Creed. And so right. what a great example for us, Bryce, don't you think?
1: Well, absolutely. And, uh, in a way it reminds me of one of the stories of the desert fathers when, um, one of the monastics is in his cell and, uh, and an angel of light comes to him and says, "Um, you're, you're the greatest of monks, you know, you're, you're, you're so great. You know, we love you, you know, all this stuff. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) And uh, the monastic simply says, "Uh, I'm afraid you have the wrong cell. That monastic (laughs) is a few cells down. And it, you know, the angel turned out not to be an angel and fled away. Right. Like, the yeah, it was a demon.
0: V- yeah, I remember that right.
1: one. Yeah, yeah. The one virtue that Satan cannot emulate, right, is humility. Mm-hmm. And uh, both St. Nictarius and St. John and perhaps all of the other saints, right, they exemplify this virtue to the utmost. Uh, yeah. So it's, it's pretty funny. He's uh, Maybe he's got a little bit of sense of humor, Vladica <laughs> John. Yeah.
0: It was a really good story for sure, but I'll continue on. The saint tried to decline and refuse the synod's decision, citing his speech impediment and claiming that he could not serve in such an important role with such a handicap. Indeed, he had a speech impediment and could not articulate clearly, making him difficult to understand for those who were not familiar with his way of speaking. I actually didn't know that about him, Bryce. That was really interesting.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that either.
0: Yeah, Metropolitan Anthony would not hear of it, however, reminding him that Moses also had the same obstacle, and yet he was used by God in a far greater, though similar, role. Seeing that the elevation was the will of God, St. John is seated. And on May 28, 1934, he was ordained a bishop with his spiritual father presiding. It was the last Episcopal ordination that Metropolitan Anthony would ever celebrate as he fell asleep in the Lord on August 10, 1936. Before the latter's death, Archbishop Dmitry Walensky of Haler in the Harbin Diocese invited Metropolitan Anthony to China, asking him to take over the Diocese of Shanghai. The Metropolitan's answer reveals much about his feelings on St. John, and this is a quote from him. My dear brother, I am already exceedingly old and unable to travel, but in my place I am sending you someone who is like my very self, my very soul, my very heart. I send you Bishop John. The small, frail man who almost looks like a small child, is in reality a wonder of ascetical stability and exactness in this age of complete spiritual deficiency. Unquote. The young bishop, only thirty nine years old, arrived in Shanghai on november twenty first, nineteen thirty five, the anniversary of his presbyterial ordination. Upon arrival he was immediately greeted by two massive hurdles. Completing the Russian Cathedral of Shanghai, which was as yet unfinished, and settling a pre-existing jurisdictional dispute regarding ecclesiastical administration, which had divided the Orthodox of the area into factions. Soon after arriving, the saint was able to complete both tasks successfully— resolving the dispute and restoring communion and harmony between the Greek, Serbian, and Ukrainian Orthodox communities in the area, and overseeing the completion of not only the cathedral, but also the bell tower and a three-story building for the administrative needs of the church. And wow, Bryce, I mean, just think about how much he accomplished so quickly. And even though he was ultimately successful with completing both of these important tasks— they had to have had their difficulties and, and obstacles to overcome, right? Because, I mean, I can tell you, like, you and I both have been involved in parish council, in diocesan ministry council, and to get things accomplished in the church, it's sometimes really hard work. And talking about restoring communion and harmony between these different groups, the fact that he was able to do that, there had to have been some significant obstacles that he had to overcome. And, and what, what it says about him that he was able to be so successful that quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, he uh, he hit the ground running, we might say. Yeah. And, um, you know, especially for a man who did not believe that he was necessarily worthy of receiving this position. Right. You know, I mean, you mentioned that uh, the prophet and Godseer Moses had the same impediment. And he had to mm-hmm. have his brother Aaron go with him to speak in front of Pharaoh. Right. And you think about these two instances, they're different but they both require a great amount of endurance for sure. Right. But, um, faith in God that you're going to be able to persevere through that. And, you know, you talk about restoring communion and harmony between the Greeks and the Serbians and the Ukrainian Orthodox communities in that area. That is no small task.
0: No, it's not. I mean, think about even just in the United States, all the jurisdictions that are here and how complicated it is, but he made fast work of the situation there.
1: Yeah. Right. And he, uh, had his faith in God, and he persevered. And especially, you know, Metropolitan Anthony describes him as being a a small, frail man. You know, and you look at Saint John <laughs> in photos, and he is he is a small man. You know, he's at least in stature, but definitely right. not in faith, and definitely not in leadership qualities. So that is incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's just because you may be small in stature doesn't mean that you don't have strength. And this is the perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. I'll continue on with his story. Uh, And and this really speaks to the kind of man that he was, this part that's coming up here. St. John was particularly devoted to the education of the youth in the faith. He was the inspiration and trailblazer behind countless charitable and religious institutions in the area. Churches, hospitals, asylums for the mentally ill, orphanages, homes for the elderly, and generally every social charitable organization that the Russian community in shanghai started owed their existence whether directly or indirectly to him the saint became one with his flock and despite his busy pastoral and administrative schedule actively participated in almost all of the immigrant-led organizations in the city he was particularly involved in the creation and operation of the orphanage which he named after saint Tikon of zandonsk The saintly bishop would visit the sick every day, bringing the Holy Mysteries with him so they could receive the Holy Eucharist. He didn't have a schedule for these visits, and many times he simply appeared unexpectedly at the houses of those who were shut in. Neither time nor weather stopped him, and many people would observe him walking through Shanghai in the middle of the night in a rainstorm holding his staff, his cassock battered by the wind, on his way to these visits." He did not stop his nightly calls to the sick. Even during the period of the Japanese invasion and occupation, he was ready to sacrifice his life for his flock and indeed put himself in grave danger every day, as many who were put out at night were often shot or killed on the spot. And thinking about this, Bryce, in historical context, I mean, it's mentioning the Japanese invasion and occupation. We're talking about the time of World War II, right? And we're talking about a time when it was just a very dangerous time to be alive and especially in this part of the world. And yet he did what was right. He was the living, really, he was living the, the virtue of love and endurance at the same time. And he wasn't worried about his own safety. He wasn't playing it safe. He wasn't hiding. He was out there, right? He was visiting people. He was getting to work. And how inspiring is that really? When you think about, how dangerous of a time that was. You know, we're in a, a time of relative peace here, especially in the United States, in the West, even though there are currently two wars raging in another part of the world, we're very blessed, right, to be in, in relative safety where we're living here in the U.S. But, you know, we see our clergy and, and especially our bishop, Bishop Nicholas, working so hard, right? Absolutely. And even though they may not always be feeling 100%, you know, they' know that they have to take care of the flock. they have to they have to be there to administer the sacraments. and that's an important role that we don't really think enough about, I think, as to how hard their job really is and And here's the example of someone who's a saint that was doing it under just intense circumstances and when when he had every right to fear for his life or every reason to, I should say. And he still did it, right? He just went ahead and did it anyway.
1: Right. And, uh, you know, I mean, it reminds me of what Christ says in the gospel. Um, There's no greater love than this, than from one to lay down his life for his friends. Right. And, you know, St. John truly being a good shepherd here. And like you mentioned, at this period of time in history, in this part of the world, you know, the war in the Pacific is just getting started. And that was a brutal conflict. And St. John had just left 20 years prior uh, a fallen Imperial Russia. Yeah. That was now in the hands of, of the communists that, you know, he had to move because of that. And you can imagine that, you know, not that he's been there and done that, but he's a man who has seen some things and had to endure some things, had to endure leaving his own home. Mm -hmm. And being able to lead people who are now being faced with an invasion, you know, and and the prospects of death, he continues to do his job. And like you mentioned, too, you know, our clergy in our diocese and I think in many different jurisdictions and many different dioceses across the United States, Canada, Mexico, the world, you know, there are many, many clergymen and many in the Episcopacy who work very hard and endure much, much to do what they need to do. Um, I think about the faithful in uh, in Gaza right now yeah, who are having to endure all types of conflict, all types of suffering, mm-hmm. and yet they, they persevere and yet they endure.
0: Yeah, it reminds me too of when Ukraine was attacked early on by Russia and there were pictures coming out of Ukraine where they were still having the divine liturgy underground and serving the Eucharist in the divine liturgy. And the priest was essentially in a bomb shelter, and they're still having the liturgy because they know how important it is, and they don't know how many times they'll be able to receive the Eucharist again in this life. You know, these are things that, in extreme situations, you see the importance of why it's still such a focus. It should be a focus, but... The, the endurance to, to continue on, even under incredibly difficult circumstances. I mean, St. John Maximovich is the epitome of that in his story here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'd really now like to focus on St. John's time in America, which is why he's included as one of the modern American saints who was canonized in this country. And I'll start at the end of 1962, when the Rokor Archbishop Ticon of San Francisco in the West, he actually had to resign due to his increasing ill health. His resignation left a massive vacuum, both spiritually and administratively, in the diocese. The cathedral church in San Francisco had not been built yet, and its construction had become a divisive issue amongst the congregation. As thousands of Russians in the area had known St. John from his time in Shanghai, they launched a petition to have him take over the vacant position. The Rokor Synod heeded their request and transferred the saint to San Francisco. St. John arrived in the port city On November 21st, 1962. In an odd coincidence, it was the exact same day that he had arrived in Shanghai years earlier, the anniversary of his ordination to the priesthood. In an even odder coincidence than that, the problems he met with in San Francisco were the exact same two issues he had faced in China, namely the construction of a cathedral and the reconciliation of a divided local community. The saint was once again successful in raising the cathedral and seeing the entire construction through to completion. His attempts to reconcile the divided community, however, were not as efficacious. Despite his best efforts, there were deep-seated political, economic, cultural, social, and personal hatreds that refused to be reconciled. And individuals who refused to accept his fatherly guidance and spiritual advice. Undeterred, St. John continued to guide his flock, and soon many, though not all, of the issues were resolved. He would suffer the slings and arrows of accusation and slander from disgruntled members of his diocese throughout his life. And in his last years, the ascetic bishop was even dragged through the courts in a civil proceeding. He was indicted after being unjustly charged with allegedly suppressing evidence of financial misappropriation by his parish council the saint remained calm and composed through the proceedings, refusing to accuse others in order to clear his name. He did not become angry or bitter towards those who had maligned him, but maintained his serenity and tenderness for his flock throughout the temptation until he was justifiably found innocent of all charges. And Bryce, this really is a very moving part of his story because it must have been Really difficult for him to be wrongly accused and dragged through the court system and the the patience and discipline and endurance that he needed to endure it while remaining calm and cool and collected. You know, this reminds me a lot of the story of St. Nectarios and how he was wrongly slandered and wrongly accused uh, by people that were just making things up and were driven by jealousy I think this part of St. John Maximovich's stories is, is very similar to St. Nectarios. They went through almost exactly the same thing. And the court system, right, having to, to stand in court and being just torn to shreds by lawyers, it's just not right, right? You think of a bishop who is innocent being put through that process, and it's a disgrace to even think about that. And yet he he faced that. And and had such such endurance to get through that, and to not let that change him into a bitter person that had any kind of malice back towards those who were persecuting him unjustly. I mean, that, that's just incredible, isn't it?
1: Absolutely, and I mean, I think you said it really well. Um, he endures many of the same things, if not similar things, to uh, to what Saint Nectarios endured, and yet he did not let it. Change who he was and change what he thought of God, and perhaps what he thought of the church as well. He still upheld what he needed to do, and he he did his duty till the end. So that is an impressive, impressive thing, and um, it's really humbling.
0: Yeah, that's right. I'll finish off here at the end of the story for this episode of Saint John Maximovich. The humble saint's spiritual gifts had become evident from the beginning of his ministry in Shanghai, and in the last years of his life in San Francisco, dozens of witnesses wrote down and shared miraculous events that had come about through his intercessions, instances where he had looked into their souls and revealed things they had never told anyone, and prophetic foresights regarding events that were yet to come. St. John Maximovich reposed during a visit to Seattle on July 2, 1966, while accompanying a tour of the Kursk Root icon of the Mother of God, the Holy Hierarch's funeral took place on July 7th at the Cathedral of the Holy Protection of the Mother of God in San Francisco. Five archbishops and scores of other clergy concelebrated, and the cathedral was filled to capacity. His body was buried in the church's underground chapel where it lay until the transition of his relics on October 12th, 1993. His body was found to be incorrupt. And after his official canonization in 1994, his relics were placed in the main church where they remain to this day to be venerated by the faithful. Wow, what a story. Bryce, I was going to ask you to give your final thoughts if you would, and then mm-hmm. I'll I'll share some of my own.
1: Of course. Um well, here we are in the fourth episode of this series and uh you know, thinking about endurance as a virtue. Um, you know, Michael, both you and I, and I think many of you out there, the last few years have not been easy. Um, you know, with COVID and everything that's been going on with that, all of the conflict that goes around the world, um, it can cause you to be a little shaken. I know I was shaken at times, but when it comes to practicing the virtues and really beginning to understand them, not on an intellectual level necessarily, but in a way in which our experiences help define us and help define the way that we see the world. I think that endurance, for me, has shown to be a quintessential virtue. And so in thinking about the lives of St. Nectarios and St. John, and of course, all the saints, um, we see what our Lord says in Matthew 24, verse 13. Uh, really exemplified and that is he who endures to the end shall be saved and i'm also reminded especially in both the stories of these men that they were reviled and that they were persecuted Um, the beatitudes in matthew chapter 5 when our lord says blessed are you when men shall revile you and men shall persecute you and say all manner of evil against you for my sake Um, the christian life is not easy and we've mentioned that and I think that kind of goes without saying any type of spiritual progress, any type of spiritual undergoing that we do from our experiences, they require our efforts and they require our attention. And that is what the ascetical struggle is. And I think we learn that especially during the fasts of the church, but I think we learn that every single day, every single day we turn to repent every single day we fall and then we repent again. Um, and so thinking about what both, St. John and St. Nectarios did in their lives. And as they continue to intercede for us, it's an important thing to always remember that, uh, our faith keeps us. And I'm reminded of the words that I saw, uh, not too long ago. And I've read them and I try to keep them in my heart and in my mind, the words I will endure for Jesus Christ. And, um, those are important things. And, uh, we shan't take them for granted, even on days when it's it's difficult.
0: I wanted to reflect on what has been you know, a really, I think, good series of episodes on the first four values of the Antiochian men. Leadership, obedience, vigilance, now endurance, and the overarching value of love is coming up as our finale And we, Bryce and I, chose to pick saints for each of these core values, these virtues, really. And we picked the saints that we thought would be good to talk about for each of these. But the truth is we could have picked so many, so many different saints for all of these. And we are all called to be saints, you know, in this in this episode, we focused on the lives of two saints that happened to be bishops of the church. Two modern saints who really didn't live all that long ago, which makes them a little bit more relatable to us. But you don't have to be a bishop to become a saint. You don't have to be a monk to become a saint. All of us are called to be saints, and if you are a layperson, who is not clergy, who is not a monk, it doesn't mean that you're any less important or that you have a more challenging road or an easier road. It's just a different road. It's easy sometimes to put the bishops of the church or the monks up on a pedestal to admire their extreme asceticism, and for good reason. There's a lot of things that we should be inspired by through their lives. But if we're not a monk, and we're not a bishop, and we're a layperson, we still have a roadmap for our own salvation and to become saints, to become holy ones, to be those that are set apart for God. My hope is that these episodes have helped you to reflect and have helped you to think about some of the important virtues, some of the important things that the saints we picked did in their lives that we can learn from. I know I can learn from them. And I think I speak for Bryce where, when I say that he can as well, we all learn so much when we read about the lives of those men who made it, they made it, they became saints. And there's no reason why each and every one of you listening to this podcast can't achieve the same thing. We're all on this journey together. We're all here to help each other in the process, even though we may have different roles. But the goal is achievable. As we wrap up this episode and we now think about the overarching value of love, and that virtue being the most important, and you think of the words of Scripture in 2 Corinthians, faith, hope, and love, love is by far the most powerful. And in the Antiochian men, it's important that we have brotherly love for each other, love for our neighbor. In the event that we have coming up, our first ever in-person Antiochian men conference and retreat, we're going to have the chance to build brotherhood, to build strong, authentic bonds, man to man, to really practice brotherly love while we're in each other's presence in person. That's what it's all about. And God willing, we hope to have a finale to this series at that event where each one of you can come, tell us about your patron saint, and give us an example about how that patron saint lived a life of love for their neighbor and love for God. We hope to see you there March 7th to the 9th at the Antiochian Men Conference Retreat. Registration is still open. Go to antiochianmen.org. To learn more. Well, that's our show for today. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Coming Out of Chaos. Please remember to check out our website at antiochianmen.org to learn more about our organization. We also have many videos available that can be found on that website as well as on our Amen YouTube channel.
1: Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'd also appreciate a positive review if the platform allows you to do so. Please share this podcast with your friends and help us to spread the word about it.
0: We want to thank everyone who's been sending us feedback on our podcast episodes. If anyone would like to send us any feedback at all, just send an email to amendomse at gmail.com. That's A-M-E-N-D-O-M-S-E at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you if you have any questions or comments for us.
1: Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.